Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Try Faster podcast presented by the Fort Worth Tri Club, where we dive into triathlon-specific training and coaching, uh, discuss current triathlon news and races. Today, we have a very interesting podcast. Um, we don't necessarily have a main topic to go through, but we're going to do, um, we've been getting a bunch of questions from listeners. Uh, I have also been putting questions together uh, for that I want to ask my coach, Keith Kotar, and we're going to run through as many of those as we can. Um, and then we're also going to be talking about some news that we feel is, is noteworthy in the triathlon landscape, including the new PTO point system uh, and a couple race recaps. Uh, with that, though, Keith Kotar is joining me. Keith, welcome. Thanks, Michael. Glad to be back on. Uh, and like we do most of most of our podcasts, we want to start with uh, the training updates or kind of race updates. There's not a whole lot for me to share on my end. It's, it's still freezing cold outside and we're expecting 10 inches of snow in, in, in the next day or two here in northern Illinois. Um, so, so for me, it's just winter training. But Keith, you're located down in Texas and you had a huge group of people out for the Cowtown marathon right. and half marathon and 10k and kids race um so a whole bunch of, of team members from the fort worth tri club were down there and participating a really strong turnout maybe start there how how did the team do before we get to your race um how, how was the team overall uh we it was really great we we had a lot of people out there i think we had 26 people total race 28 times um so it was it was fun to to see everybody out there and um, I think just on the, whenever you get to do a home race like that, it's really nice to see how many people, you know, out spectating on the course. That's always pretty fun too. So it's, it's nice. You get to sleep, sleep in your own bed at home and it was 15, 20 minute drive. And, and it's, a it's not a huge marathon, but it's, it's, a there are a couple, couple thousand people, um, you know, each day. So, I mean, it's a pretty good sized event. Is this a, tell us a little bit about the course. Is this a marathon, half marathon PR course? Is this a honest course that's a little bit tough with some hills? What it's, does it look like? It's pretty tough. The uh, the half, I think, isn't quite as bad as the full. Um, the full's got about 880 feet of climbing, I think, somewhere in that range. So it's tough. It's not like St. George tough, but it's not, uh, it's not somewhere where you're going to go PR unless, you know, it's the only course you run, I guess you know, um, but it's definitely, it's definitely on the tough side. There's a, there's a really big climb, um, going like from mile nine to mile 10, like, right. The mile, mile nine marker is, is about a third of the way up the hill. Um, and then it's just kind of rolling through, through most of it. And then there's a few decent Hills kind of in the 22, 21, 22 mile area. Um, so it's, it's definitely challenging. It's not as, it's not, I wouldn't say that it's hard, but it's not, not a fast one. Yeah. There's so many, I feel like so many races want to advertise flat and fast to get as many people to sign up as possible. Very few races want to be like, Oh, come out to this marathon. And we're going to hit you at mile 21, 22 and 23. Right. When you, <laughs> you yeah. don't want it. So, so I, that sounds like to me, I would categorize that in my own subjective categorization as that sounds like an honest marathon. Like you, you can PR yeah. there, but you're going to have to push it. You're going to be fit. Um, it's an honest course and it's not, yeah, just, you should, uh, you should come down you and the do PR. It. Uh, I don't, I wish I could. Um, but it's probably, it was probably too hot there for me, honestly. Yeah. It was, it was in the fifties and, and it was 98% Ooh. humidity at the start of the race. So, That's... uh, it, it rained. It was, uh, I think it was below 40 and raining for the 5k and 10k on Saturday. 
and then all the rain went away and it got warm for Sunday. So it was, Jeez. it was kind of, uh, the weather wasn't great. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a fun course. You, you start kind of on the West, slightly West side of Fort Worth and then, um, kind of make your way through the stockyards. That's kind of the historic area in Fort Worth. You get to run through downtown, you run across TCU's campus and, um, last couple miles miles around the river and then you you come back around back to where you started so it's it's a nice it's, it's a good course okay sounds like it's about 50 degrees too hot for me uh, at least based off what i'm used to right now so i'll have to pass um how did you do so last time we talked like well a couple podcasts ago we covered um, your your last marathon and you were really racing for the the win which is quite unique um and then let's well, just be honest you kind of blew up uh, yeah. at one point in that race and you when we were chatting you kind of made it feel like a little bit of a lesson learned you entered this race with a different mindset or a different approach like why and how so like what and what was your approach so i think going into this one um maybe to start when you look at the history of cowtown um they do give some decent prize money for the top three and so sometimes it draws some pretty fast guys and then sometimes there's like nobody there and so it's kind of a uh, a roll of the dice um, as as far as how competitive it's going to be. And so like last year, uh, I think the same guy has won the last three in a row. He's pretty fast. He ran 232 over the weekend. Um, but usually after him, there may be one or two more fast guys. Um, and then, and when I say fast, I mean like under 245. And then um, it just depends. Like last year, 248 got you second and third. And so it just kind of depends on the year. Um, and so I figured I wasn't going to win cause he was back and there were a couple other guys that were pretty good. Um, there were originally like three or four Kenyans on the start list, but I don't think any of them actually ended up showing up. Maybe one, I don't know, maybe not any of them. Um, and so my plan really was just to kind of make it to the end, still feeling good. Um, it was, uh, I started off pretty slow because, uh, in between six weeks, I think I figured out at least where I am in training is not quite enough because by the time I started to feel good in my legs after the last one, it was pretty much too late to do anything that affected this race. So um, I didn't really get in any longer runs. I think I got up to like 15 or 16 twice and that was about it. And I didn't really do a whole lot of quality. Um, I ran with a friend. She was doing, um, she did like six times 2K at her 10 K pace, which was right about my marathon pace or close faster than what I ended up running, but around what I figured I could run in shape. And that was pretty much the only kind of marathon specific workout I did. Um, and so I started off pretty, pretty casually. I think my first mile was like 624, 625. Um, and they were all, all the miles after that were pretty much right in that range. Um, like between 620 and, and 640. I think I had one that was pretty fast coming through uh, downtown. There's a really quick mile. And I think I went like 610. Um, but other than that, I tried to just keep it real easy the whole day. Um, and let's see, I'm, I'm looking at my splits right now to kind of give you an idea. Yeah, the of the first 10 miles with mile 10 being the one with the big hill, that one was not even the slowest one. There's, I had a 632 in there. Um, and that was my slowest mile until 14. And it's kind of starts to get a little hilly around that section. 
Um, so I was running now in like the six thirties, um, through the teens, the teen miles. Um, and my legs started to feel kind of iffy, um, around like 17 or 18. And so, um, there's like a, a pretty flat stretch through a park that's like 18, 19, 20. Um, and so my plan was just to try to pick it up there if I felt good. Um, and then the hilly miles, 21, 22, I was just going to kind of jog and then you get back to the river and it's pretty much flat until, um, there's a pretty good hill coming to the finish line. So I was like, I'll just jog through the, the hilly section and then, um, make it, you know, if I'll pick it up the last couple of miles. And so, um, I, I got through the hilly part and I think that the uphills, I went pretty slowly. Like I was probably running like seven thirty pace on the ups, but I tried to let the downs carry me and it actually loosened my legs up to the point where I came out of the hilly stretch, probably feeling better than I had since like mile 12 or 13. And so I got back on the river and I thought, okay, this is great. I'm going to start going fast again. And I got back under, um, seven minute pace. And then, um, the legs pretty much were done. I think it was just too long of a day relative to the amount of volume I've been running. Um, I wasn't able to get a big run in for either marathon. Um, so like the last two marathon builds that I've done, I ran, I ran three hours at least once before each one. And I usually got in like two or three, two and a half hour runs. And this build, I think the longest I got was like two ten, And so, um, I think that was kind of the, the biggest part for me toward the end. Um, so I just made it the last couple of miles. I was just hanging on my last two miles were seven fifty six and then eight forty five, And, uh, I ended up coming in at two fifty eight in a bit, which was not too bad. Um, I mean, whenever I was training for Cowtown in 2019, I split 258 on an easy run while fasted. So that tells you that, you know, the fitness isn't quite the same as it was then. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was, it wasn't, it was disappointing, but it wasn't disastrous. Like it was, um, it was seven minutes slower than Louisiana, but it felt a lot better than Louisiana did just kind of the way that race played out compared to this one. Yeah. So, yeah, I think like, what about the hills? When you said you were coming in or coming down the hills, you were really letting them carry you down. Do you feel like you, you overdid it on that part and that's what took your legs out or was it really just not having the volume? It was just the volume. Yeah. You gotta, I think that, um, like if you look at the power, when you're going downhill, if you go pretty fast, the power doesn't really go up, which means that the shock to your legs isn't, isn't quite as bad as it feels in the moment. And so, um, you know, I think that that was good because you're, you're going to gain some time if you kind of let it go on the downhill. Um, but yeah, it was just the, it was just the volume came back to get me at the end. So I don't think it was nutrition, you know, it felt pretty good. Um, I, I only took three gels because I got to the point at 23 and I was still feeling good at 23 miles that I was like, if I take a gel now, it's not really gonna do me any good anyway. So, um, I had a fourth one in my pocket, but um, you know, like I said, I've run this. Yeah. And you know, I, I think, like I said, I've run faster than this with fasted. And so I felt like, yeah, yeah it should have, it, that's not, uh, maybe a couple more gels would have helped a little bit, but it wouldn't have really affected the anything too much. Any more marathons on the schedule for the year or is kind of packeted in from that distance? 
No, I don't think so. I don't think I'm going to be able to, to fit one in. Um, I would like to, but you know, looking at this, the kind of looking at how my body responded to this, I think I probably won't do another marathon until this one next year. I was, I was thinking about running the Dallas marathon where I did the half in December, but, um, I think I'm going to focus on trying to run a fast half and then, um, I'll run the half at Dallas and then the half at Louisiana or maybe even Houston or something. And then, um, come back to Cowtown and try to see if I can do a little better. Yeah. Marathons take a lot out of you. Like it just takes a long time to recover. I feel like even after Chicago last year, my heart rate was just off a bit for everything I was doing for like 30 days. Yeah. Even though my body started feeling better, um, but there was still something there that was like, you're just not quite ready to even get back to regular training yet. So it, it takes a lot. It takes a whole lot. Yeah. Maybe the other, the other thing I've thought about and, you know, who knows, I'll probably change my mind, but uh, if I, if I want to do two marathons, I'll probably run the full at Dallas and then that would give me 10 weeks in between. And I think that would be enough to kind of train a little bit in between, but six weeks was just too short because I started feeling good yeah, at like, about three weeks trained for about a week or a week and a half. And then it was like done, you know, but 10 weeks yeah, I, I can, I could get them five weeks, five or six weeks of like good training in between if it's 10 weeks. I feel like it just depends how you would approach that first marathon. How, how would you approach Dallas? Is it still a hard effort or is it like, no, I'm going to really just take this as a honest effort, get the time in, run a good pace, but not put it to a point where it's going to take me 30 days to recover. If you do that, like then you're going to lose fitness over that month. You're going to barely make it back to where you were going to be 10 weeks later. Right. Yeah. I, I think, I think maybe my perspective the... from like a amateur, like an amateur standpoint, it takes, it takes a lot out. It took a lot out of me, my first marathon. And I suspect every marathon in the future will be similar. Um, it just takes a ton. Yeah. And I think, I think it would depend on, um, if I do a fall 70.3 and then how much time I have before the Dallas one. Um, and then Dallas is kind of like Cowtown. They, they don't put up any money at Dallas, but they usually get a decent field, but not crazy. Like the winning time is usually around two thirty. Um, and so I think it would just kind of depend on if I wanted to go race or if I wanted to go run, you know? Yeah. So. All right. I think, you know, speaking of heart rate, we can transition into some of the questions that we have. We'll try to hit as many of these as we can. Uh, the first question here, I'm going to make this just like a perfect transition is when you're doing your easy workouts, do you pace them by heart rate or do you pace them by feel RPE? Um, and that's a good question. I feel like for a coach to answer. So I would do this by feel. I always tell athletes that you, you want your easy workouts to be conversational, you know, for the most part, you know, you might have some sort of different purpose and maybe it's not quite an easy workout. Um, but I think that heart rate, it's a little bit too variable and there are probably too many external factors. And I think we've kind of addressed heart rate in some past episodes when we're talking about like your lactate threshold and, and how heart rate doesn't really indicate lactate, you know, and things like that. Um, and so I think that going by feel is probably the best, but you have to also be in tune with your body and honest with what is easy and what is not easy. Right. It's easy yeah, to like fall into the, I'm feeling really good. And then you start running a little bit harder because your body's feeling good, but maybe you're not actually running as easy as you think. 
All right, let me ask you a question. If you're coaching a new athlete to endurance sport, what would you would you give them the same advice as an athlete that has been doing endurance sports for a while? I think yes and no because you still want them to try to keep it at a at a level where it's conversational and and laid back, but somebody that's brand new might not be able to do that. And so I think with a lot of people that are brand new to training, lots of times I'll give them run walks in the beginning. And that's just to make sure that they're deliberate about keeping, keeping it easy so that they're not trying to run 20 minutes straight or 30 minutes straight. And then it gets progressively harder because they might be trying to run the exact same pace and then it kind of escalates. But if we schedule walk breaks into it, it kind of forces them to come back down and, and relax a little bit. Yeah, my, my thought with this, like the reason I asked that question is with a newer endurance athlete, someone newer into the sport, maybe not like brand new, but even like six months in, like you're still not, you're still trying to figure things out a year, two years in. Like this, this could be someone that has been in the sport even for a little bit of time. Like at least heart rate gives you something measurable where I know what you mean when you say keep it conversational, but like, what does that actually mean? Maybe you could expand on that, but heart rate at like, it does vary a little bit, but that's why their heart rate zones. Right. So like there's an upper end of zone two, there's a lower end of zone two. And if you drift into zone three, like I know some people like call that the grays, the gray area, like don't train in that, but like, it's not the end of the world. If you drift into that, you know you shouldn't be in zone four or zone five, which right. those are your higher ends for your heart rate on an easy run. Keep it to two if you can. Maybe you drift into three if you hit a headwind or some hills or something like that. But at least it gives like a concrete number. I'm a numbers person, so maybe that's why I'm thinking this could be helpful for new athletes. But I get why you're saying feel. And, it, and it's interesting, too, like how it almost kind of comes together. Today, if I go out on an easy run and I'm outdoors or if I'm on the treadmill or if I'm even on my bike doing a bike workout, I do this to myself all the time. I say, okay, like I'm breathing. I feel like I'm doing an easy ride. Maybe I'm pushing it up to the upper end of zone two. I think my heart rate is 132 beats per minute. And then I check my watch and it's like 132 or 133 or maybe 131. Like I'm almost within a beat per minute. Like I kind of know where my heart rate is just based off how I'm feeling. Right. And that's the goal is that with time, you don't really need a heart rate monitor. You just kind of know where you are. And so, um, I think that's important. Just, you need to know how you feel. Um, and I think the, the conversational, you know, when you said, what does that mean? Um, lots of times, especially with the juniors will, I'll give them workouts where it's the difficulty level is based on like how much they can talk. So if it's like complete sentences, that's like your easy run. And then, if we're doing something steady, like kind of just under their threshold, it'll be like broken sentences, you know? Um, and then sometimes too, like if we're looking for the same um, training zone, you know, it is, it's going to get harder with, with time. So like if you're doing six times a mile, you know, the first one and they're all the same pace, right? The first one's going to be easier. The fifth one is going to be harder. And so it's going to progress, even though you're kind of working at the same rate, um, especially as all those energy systems start to get, get moving. Um, and we start to move toward whatever stimulus we're looking for, then, you know, it's going to progress. 
Yeah. And the question is very specific to easy workouts, which is good because when you start to get into intervals or anything like we're actually working out, the first four intervals of an eight interval set are, I feel like are harder than the second four. Like the, by the time your body is fully warmed up and adjusted to the effort, <clears throat> excuse me, like those, that last half of the workout and the intervals that come are usually easier. So you can't, you can't go by feel. You can't go by heart rate because even sometimes like maybe the heart rate lags the effort a little bit or maybe it doesn't. You just have to do the work. So when it comes to interval time and it's not an easy workout, I feel like it's just toss these things aside. Uh, Unless you're seeing like a major issue with your heart rate just being completely decoupled toward the middle or even end of your workout, then that would be like a signal to like, hey, I'm tired. Something's off. I didn't feel right. It's time to cut the workout short. Right. So, okay. Speaking of, man, I'm just like ripping these transitions like perfectly. Decoupling of like your effort, perceived effort, and the work that you're doing. This is a question I had for you. Personally, I hate working out in the morning. My The decoupling of the perceived effort is so much higher. When I get up, I have my coffee. I have a little breakfast and I try to do my workout, whether it's an easy workout or there's intervals included in the morning versus if I try to do like a lunchtime workout or an evening workout. Am I the only person that feels this way? What do you think? So I think that you're the only person I've ever had that's not a high school student that has said that the morning is easier than the evening. Um, No, the morning is harder. I mean, that's what I meant, that the morning is harder yeah. than the, the evening. Most people, really? I feel like, tell me I get off school or I get off work and then try to work out and it's terrible. And they like to hit it really early. Um, there's one guy that I coached that was doing all of his workouts in the evening and he was having a pretty hard time. And then he started getting up at like 3.30 and working out from like 4 to 5. And he actually was doing better at that time than he was at 5 p.m. Um but I think like you just have to find what's better for you and, you know, your life schedule, you know, very likely could just determine which one you have to do. But I think that if you're stuck at a certain time of day and it feels like it's just a drag every single day, maybe try to figure out if you can reconfigure your life schedule a little bit to, you know, fit a time that might be better. Um, I definitely like working out in the morning more. Um, I do think though, that if I'm working out really hard, I kind of like to be awake for a couple hours beforehand, not, you know, it's, it's hard. Like if you're getting up at four 30 and you get on the trainer at five o'clock, like that is pretty tough. Um, but I think, uh, you know, like an easy workout first thing in the morning, no problem. Um, but usually if it's a hard workout, I try to be up for at least an hour, even if that means getting up a little earlier than I want to. Yeah, I, I'm st- I'm just surprised by your feedback because like the science in my head, and there's better podcasts if you want to dig into the science out there, but the science that I, I like, and it makes sense, is you're not, you wake up in the morning, you're just coming out of a fasted state. Your blood sugar isn't what it is going to be. You know, if you time your breakfast or your a mid-morning snack to hit that lunch ride, that lunch run, like you can really kind of time it to like peak your blood glucose, your energy to like just be right for that workout. You can do the same in the evening, but you can't do that in the morning. In my mind, it feels like most people should be having the similar experience I'm having where morning workouts are harder, but it doesn't sound like that's the case. 
it's it's just I find it very interesting. I also know going forward, just looking at like work, life, kids, and and family. Like I know I'm going to be doing more morning workouts, so it's a little bit stressful from that perspective. Is I wish there was a way to make them easier. Is there any tips? What what are how do we make morning workouts easier if you absolutely hate them? Well, I think I think what you're doing is probably the the first thing. Like get up and have your cup of coffee and eat something and and get going. Yeah. Um, I mean, unless it's a workout that you want to do fasted, which would, that's maybe an entire podcast in itself. Um, but yeah, I think it's just getting, being awake a little bit earlier is the the best thing that you can do. Um, but that probably means going to bed earlier the night before or the same night, right. Uh, to make up for that. Okay. That's. It's going to be an adjustment period. I like, but I also see the benefits too. Like if you can perform in the morning, like it makes sense to try and do that or practice it because that's because very race. rarely do we have races in the afternoon, right? Like it just doesn't happen. Yeah. So maybe I'll actually improve my race performance by doing them in the morning. And when last year and I, and again, obviously this year, when I do the big, big run workouts, just because they take so much time, they're two, two and a half hours long. Like I have to do, I have to wake up early, do this in the morning because there's no other part of my day where I could fit something like that in. So, and then you're doing a marathon early in the morning. So, all right, I'll deal with it. I'll suck it up and uh, hopefully I'll become better at it. Or maybe we'll have more conversation on this too. It's like, maybe if I figure it out, I can share some ideas. Um, And if I don't, I'll certainly be on here complaining more about it in the future. All right, so. Well, let's talk a little bit about power. And we have a couple questions here on power, actually. Uh, and the first one is, is FTP important? Yes and, and no. Thinking more along the lines of bike power, when we, I think when we say FTP typically. So is bike power FTP important? I think it, it, it is a little bit. Um, I mean... I think the, the basis and the first thing we have to remember is that, and I think we addressed this too on just one of the recent training ones, um, is that your functional threshold power is different than like your lactate threshold power, right? And so um, what we're looking for from your functional threshold is it's exactly what the name suggests in that it's something that we can use just kind of as a base point, right? It's functional. So it's what you can do for one hour in a time trial, an evenly paced time trial. And so we kind of use that just to give us ideas of, you know, what you can hold for your actual race distance or time. So unless you're racing an Olympic distance and you're going to bike right about an hour, right? You're what we're actually going to use is some percent of that FTP to figure out what your bike power is. Um, and I think that the reason why, the, the one hour FTP is the common number is because we can actually test for that more easily. Right. And it's, um, it's something that we can test with a short test. Um, but it's also a long enough, one hour is a long enough time interval that we can kind of use it to extrapolate to other longer events. Right. Um, cause you're not from a practical perspective, if you're racing a 70.3, you're not really going to go do, you could have a functional three hour threshold too that you would use. Um, and then maybe that would actually be more accurate, but you're never going to find an easy way to test outside of doing, you know, a 90 K time trial. You're, uh, you're not going to have like a functional threshold power for your race distance. And so 
that's how we use that that number is as since it's one hour we can kind of give there are some generic guidelines to start with you know of what power you could hold for you know x amount of time relative to that that one hour okay so how do we test it or how often should we test it i think like maybe we don't talk about like the, the actual testing protocols there's a couple out there but like how often should an athlete test their ftp because like when we put this out there i haven't tested my ftp in over 12 months right but you also didn't bike a whole lot you might be kind of an outlier uh, <laughs> but uh to me i think that you know, during the season, you're probably not going to test a ton. I think that if, you know, some athletes like the, the Norwegians claim to test all the time. Um, but, you know, I think it's, it depends on what kind of test you want to do too. If you really want to go suffer for a few minutes, you can go do a ramp test and it won't take too much out of you physically. It'll just hurt really bad for a short amount of time. Um, but I really think that the best way to test your FTP is to, to do a one hour time trial and, um, we're just not going to do that very often, maybe a couple times a year, you can fit that in. Um, and then from a practicality perspective, I think a lot of people probably don't have a good means of doing a one hour time trial. Um, because it's one of those things where I don't think I'd want to give somebody that type of a, a session on the trainer. And then, um, the athlete also needs to have access to a place where they can do a fairly uninterrupted one hour time trial without too many you know, turns and U-turns or anything like that. Why not the trainer? Like that, I feel like the trainer is actually designed for pain and punishment, which is exactly what a 60-minute session sounds like, pain and punishment. Like you could do a 20-minute and like take 95, I think, percent of that is that's, the 20-minute test. That's that's the standard um, one. Yeah. But if you don't, why not do a one-hour on the trainer, like other than like the mental anguish you might be giving someone? I think it's, it's the mental side. I think that, um, unless you're really, really good at riding the trainer, like if you're Lionel Sanders, um, otherwise I think that most people won't actually give enough of an effort. You know, I think, I think it'll fall off more than, more than you would think toward the end. Okay. I could see that, but that's what, you know, that's what it's all about. I, I think I could perform a one hour, but I hope you don't put one on my schedule. Maybe, maybe we'll have to look at it <laughs> on the trainer. Yeah. Should I be testing soon? Like if it's, it's like not that important. I feel like I know where my own personal zone is. Like, I don't know where it's at precisely. I know where like, maybe it's in this 10 watt range. Is that good enough or should, should I be testing soon? I think that's good enough. And I think that, you know, if you've got a, a pretty small range like that, then you just kind of lean toward the lower side to make sure you're not overdoing your training and, and you'll be fine. Um, during the season, I don't really have anybody test unless they don't race very often, but for a lot of people, we can use sprint tries to, to pretty, get a pretty good indication of, of where their threshold is. So, because most people like a sprint try in total, all three sports is going to be like 60 to 90 minutes. And so, um, I've found, and you know, this is not scientific and it depends on the person and the, the course and whatever else is going on. Um, but most people are fairly close to their, their FTP for a sprint tri bike. You know, if you're, you know, back of the pack and maybe a 20 K bike is going to take you like 45 or 50 minutes, then maybe not. Um, 
But if you're kind of in that bulk of the people that's between like 30 and 40 minutes, then I think it ends up being pretty close and it's close enough that we can, we can make a fair estimate. Goodness. I really want to do a sprint try. It's been so long since I've done one. sounds like a ton of fun, but um, haven't done one in ages. I'm doing one okay. next weekend. All right. And you're going to put out 105% of your FTP, I hope. That's my goal. Because I don't know how, yeah. how well I'm going to be able to run. <laughs> are you sore today? I should ask that question. How are, you, how are your legs? How's your body three days after the marathon? Um, I was able to go downstairs today without flinching. So I was, I was pretty happy with that. Okay. You're I good. got on yeah, the bike for 30 minutes the last two days and, and that helps a lot. Yeah. Okay. You're gonna, you're gonna struggle this weekend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not bad. Like I can feel it a little bit walking around and like around my knee and my IT band and stuff like that. There's some soreness. And if you like came up and punched me on the thigh, it would hurt really bad. But other than that, walking is pretty good today. Good. I hope you don't, I hope that doesn't happen to you very often. <laughs> Uh, all right, so so we've ch- we've chatted about bike cycling power and how that's used from a coaching perspective and an athlete perspective. There's also, and it's newer, running power, and that's starting to gain traction. I'm a little bit of a doubter of the technology currently because I just don't really understand it. But compare and contrast running power versus cycling power and how you view it from like a coach's lens. So I think the the biggest difference is that in running, there's a little bit smaller variance in what you're doing. So, you know, like for most people, I think if you go out on an easy bike ride, you're probably doing like 50 or 60% of your threshold, right? That would be kind of that comfortable, super easy, relaxed area, maybe even like 40%. But to do 40% of your or even 50% of your running threshold, you would be barely moving. Like it would be like just you're out maybe brisk walk at the most. Um, and so the running power is in a much smaller window. And I think that's um, like, I've, I've had some athletes now use it for about four years, give or take. And so I think I've gotten a pretty good handle on, on how to kind of read the running power, but it's, it's a lot different than your cycling power because you can, you're operating at a, a much higher percent of your threshold because, um, just because it takes so much more effort because the run power is actually all of the work that you're doing in joules, right? Whereas on the bike, it's only the amount of work that you're generating from the pedals or however your, your power meter measures it. So it's not taking like a whole body effect. So, um, I think for most most people like your running power is going to be higher than your cycling power. Um, unless you're like a really super cyclist and you're really skinny. So like if you had today, Pogachar take, go out with a running power meter, I bet his running power would be a lot lower than his cycling power just because he's so strong on the bike, but he doesn't weigh a whole lot. Um, whereas in the, the run, especially as like you get, like larger, like a larger person, you're just going to need more. You have to do more work to move. Whereas on the bike, um, the efficiency is different. Yeah. Like 300 Watts cycling is, is not 300 Watts running. 300 Watts right. running is going to be much slower in comparison to where you would be if you were doing that on the bike. 
But I also think about it too, like go to your gym and jump on one of those row machines and you can put 300 watts out without doing any effort because it's your, your, your muscles, your entire body is contributing to the work that's going into the pull of the rower. Your legs are contributing your core, your back, your shoulders. Uh, pretty much every part of your body is now contributing and there's no lost or un, I shouldn't say lost. Not, power is never lost, but it's actually measuring it all in a, right. as a total versus on the bike. It's just really measuring how much are you deflecting those pedals? How much power is actually going into the pedals or the crank arm or where the wheel or wherever the power meter on the bike is stored. So, right. Oh, I have not yet like really grasped running power. Do you feel like this is the future of where coaching and training is heading or like we were talking about earlier with heart rate and feel on easy workouts and you just have to do the intervals when you're trying to train and become a faster runner. Like, is that going to still be the predominant way to train? Like what is running power really threatening? Uh, I would say the normal ways that people train. Yes. I, th I think it's way better. Um, and I think it's sometimes it's psychologically better too, you know, because some of the athletes that I've had run with power, um, especially as you get kind of toward the pointy end of the race, the, paces that they're running are really, really hard, right? If you're training for like a high level, even marathon, like the pace is still pretty fast. And so I think that for me, like if I have a workout where I want to run a certain pace, whether it's marathon pace or 5k pace, but especially as it gets faster and faster, you know, the conditions of the day and the course and all that have a bigger impact on your, um, like what pace you're running. But for me, it's, I can, um, lock in on the, uh, the power instead. So like if I'm out at the, the river, um, I know I've referenced the river several times here in Fort Worth, the Trinity river is a big long stretch. It connects Fort Worth to Dallas. You can go run wherever it's pretty flat. So it's like an, it's an ideal place to do intervals, but you can catch a lot of wind through there. And so for me, like one day, maybe a year ago, I was doing some 400s at 5k pace but it was really obvious that I was going much easier than 5k pace one way. And I was going much harder than 5k pace the other way. And so, um, I ran about 360 Watts, 370 Watts, which is about where my running 5k pace is. And, you know, coincidentally, when I took all of the wind aided 400s and averaged them out with all of the headwind 400s, they actually averaged very close to my 5k pace. Um, and so I think that the power is a nice guide. Um, and so far I've kind of used power as a guide in these long races. So in the half, um, and then in the Louisiana marathon, I did not use it as a guide in Cowtown. I just ran whatever felt good at Cowtown. Um, uh, and then obviously whenever I started racing the other guy at Louisiana, I threw the power out the window too. Um, but in Dallas, I, I felt pretty confident I could run about 340 to 345 watts because I felt like my threshold was 350. Um, and I'd have to look exactly at it to see what I did, but I think it was um, it was in the 340s at, at Dallas, and, and, and I think it's a, it is a good guide. I think it, like the, the biggest challenge I see running power today <clears throat> is that, yes, stride is like doing it in a more measured way, but even, so DC Rainmaker even points out 
issues with how they measure and how it can be altered by an individual runner. Um, just their gait or stride or how their foot is landing or even changes in sometimes shoes. So like there's, there's issues with precise accuracy. Like, and if you're off two, three, four, 5%, that's an issue. Like if your bike power meter was off 4%, you're going to throw that thing out because that's giving you bad data now. But like people with running power don't seem to be as concerned about that. Maybe that gets tightened up a little bit and strides are probably like the pod based ones are probably the closest at doing that. The, the issue I think that running power is going to have is that now you're starting to see watches with it. Like my Garmin, the 955, a lot of the newer ones. And they're trying to create running power with their own formulas. Um, a lot of other watch bands or do or brands are doing it and Apple is doing it. Like what the hell is Apple doing it for? Um, and they're all using different formulas. They're all calculating it in a different way. And they're all getting different numbers. So like I like outsider looking in, like I'm not currently using, even though my watch is going give me a running power, I'm not using it to pace myself. I, th I think the error is still too big. And, and now we have a lot of players doing their own formula with their own calculation and they're all a little different. And like, if, if people have a, if a lot of people have a lot of different experiences with running power, I think that could hurt the adoption. Maybe you're right. It is a good way to do it, but it's not at a point like, and that's just my understanding of it. Like cycling power is today where it's really precise. You could like do your average trainer is plus or minus 1% or 2%. Maybe that's like a, that's pretty poor. Like you don't want, you certainly don't want anything worse than that. And today that's not where that plus or minus is on the run side. And like, that's an issue, but no one seems to like, you don't seem to be bothered by it. Uh, and other people that have it on their other watches when they do use it, they don't seem bothered by it or changes in gait or changes in shoe or equipment or other things. When, right? Like the stride stride is one of them that does capture it. Others don't capture the effect of wind as well. So like all those types of things kind of come to my head. I don't know. What's your feedback on that? So I think, um, the biggest thing is if you're, as long as your whatever unit you have is reading relative, the same relative to itself. Um, and I know what you said about the stride with like different shoes and things, potentially throwing it off. Um, I think I have the second generation of stride. I think they just came out with a newer one. Um, but I've never had, I've never felt like it was off from previous days. Uh, but the one thing about stride too, is that you do need to keep your weight fairly accurate to get the power. Um, and I think that's one thing that, um, the, because the way it reads is it's assuming it knows how much you weigh. And so that would affect the number that you get to. So, um, you could actually, if you gain a pound, then you would actually be producing more power than what it's telling you. Right. Cause it thinks you weigh less. So, um, I think you have to stay on top of that and that helps. But, um, no, I, for me, I've never really noticed a big difference in the power. Usually there's a reason, like I could be running really hard and the power is low and usually it's because I'm tired and it, it seems like it's always pretty close. Yeah. Um, but again, it's just, a guide, right? You're only using stride too, right? You haven't used in the other watch. No, I haven't out there today. Okay. It'll be interesting, I think, to see where this goes, like what happens five years from now. Like five years ago, no one was really using power today. A lot of people have access to power. Few are using it. Five years from now, 
is, was are we going to be looking back and saying running power was a neat feature but most of the watch manufacturers have abandoned it because it wasn't being utilized or issues were further i i guess uh, discovered with it yeah yeah we'll see my i think, it, I think be, it'll be interesting my hunches will figure out a way to use it at some capacity especially at perhaps the upper end of the training spectrum but if the average age group are going to use running power i don't know about that yet yeah We'll see. It'll be cool. It'll be cool to kind of to kind of see what happens. Okay. So this next question that we had was um, about whenever you're adding a race to your schedule, what are the considerations that you take into account? And so I'm going to take this from the perspective of you are adding an unplanned race to your schedule. Do you think that that this is how that's how it was worded? But I feel like. Um, it's not if you you're a race, you probably know why it's on there. So we're going to say like it's not a primary race. And what are you thinking about? So um, for me, when I'm adding a race, usually it's because I'm going to have fun doing it. I think that's the number one thing. Um, but probably the number one practical reason to add a race to your schedule would be how it fits into your plan for your a race. So if it's a nice stepping stone. Um, or if it's like a course that's similar to your A race, I think those are things that would be really beneficial to do a you know some sort of B race or a C race along the way. But um, I think the biggest questions then on the other side of that is where where is the race? Do you have to travel? How much is it going to cost? Like those are the biggest limiters I think for me. You know, if if I didn't have to worry about the cost of travel and you know what it would do to my work schedule and things like that, I would probably race every single weekend. So, yeah, yeah. I think that's a, it's an interesting question. And I guess we don't know the hundred percent of the premise or background of it, but like for me, I look at it and say, what do you want to get out of that race? Um, I have a pretty tight work family schedule already. So every race I think has purpose and there are very few C races on the schedule and there's even less B races on the schedule nowadays than there used to be. So I think when I look at it, it's like, it's still important to have a tune up race or to just get out there for the love of the sport. And maybe, you know, when the kids are a little older, I can do that more, but like right now that's limiting. Um, so if I was to, to, Hey, look at a race or a schedule, uh, trying to schedule something, the question I ask today is what am I hoping to get from that? Is it going to help me with a, a, a race down the road? Then uh, can I fit it in the schedule and all the other considerations you, you talked about? Like do, do all those other things fit and go for it? Um, is it just for fun and it's close by and it's easy to get to and the scheduling works, go for it. Um, but I think when you ask yourself the question, Hey, what am I trying to get out of this? You should also really challenge yourself and say, is this race actually going to help me? Or is it going to hurt potentially some of the real goals I'm trying to accomplish in the season? And I am, I probably, because I don't race as nearly as often as, as you, Keith, and, and a lot of people on the team, I probably lean to the direction of like racing is more fit, is a detriment to fitness than it is actually like helping you build fitness versus training. Like if you're going to take a Saturday to go do a race, well, you're also taking off thursday and friday before the race and traveling and sunday and monday the next day after the race to recover whereas if you actually had structured training you could be 
putting yourself in a better position down the road. So like, I would challenge people like before you add a race, like, is it really adding to what you're trying to accomplish? Right. Yeah. And I think that that's really important too, is it depends on the race. Like you can, you're going to get a big fitness boost from any race, but you have to see if you're like, how much do you have to, how much training do you have to miss before and after? So like, I'm going to go race next weekend. I'll be two weeks post marathon and it's a local race. I only have to drive like 40 minutes to get there. Um, I'm not going to taper for it. I'm planning to do a gigantic swim the day before and train like normal. I'm going to go do my long run after it's over. Um, and it will just be a fun local race that's around here. And so, but it, it just depends on, on what you've got. And for me, like here, I'm, I'm sure most of the people that listen to this probably live close, close to Fort Worth. Um, we, have races like three times a month from March through October. And so there are opportunities to go race and you can probably find a race that kind of fits what you're looking for. So, you know, you can find that race. That's the stepping stone to your a race, or maybe you can even find your a race in in the area. (laughs) That's great. Yeah. I, I, I'm not lucky enough to be in that position. So, um, if you can do that and it fits and it's perfect for your schedule, go for it. I just think in my own mind, it's like, okay, I gotta be cautious of like, and we've talked about this. I'm a goal is the Chicago marathon. And I'm really, I want to sign up for 70.3 Wisconsin. And it's like four or five weeks in front of it. And I'm just cautious of like, is that going to actually hurt me or help me? Um, and that makes me nervous. I have not yet signed up for 70.3 Wisconsin. Yeah. We'll talk about that. Maybe we, we can address yeah. um, multiple long races close together on a, on a later episode. Okay. We we will. We will. I, because just yesterday I had someone actually ask me something similar. They're doing Ironman Cozumel. And uh, she asked me about doing the Marine Corps marathon, like three or four weeks before that. And marathon. I know what my answer would be. (laughs) That's what my answer was. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Don't do it. It's too much. That's especially Cozumel. It's high. It's going to take a ton of, it's going to take it out of you. You're going to need every bit of energy. Um, yeah, for that, and you want to come in as fresh as possible. Yeah, and I, and I think too on the the others, the economic side is if you're going to spend a lot of money to go to Mexico for a few days, you might as well make sure the race goes well. <laughs> yeah, give yourself the best chance possible. Yeah. All right, so we're running a little short. We'll maybe hit a couple more questions here. Which ones do you want to hit? Um, I think maybe let's do the next one because I think okay. this, this one's kind of fun. And okay. then, and then we can move into uh, a little bit of news. We'll do some really brief news. All right. What is project podium? Right. So this came from uh, one of our juniors. What exactly is project podium and how does it operate and how are they helping American triathlon? Um, I think that was the whole question. And so, um, Project Podium is a men's only program that is based out of Arizona State, and they're partnered with USAT. The uh, the athletes that go there, they get to go to school at ASU. Um, they have access to their trainers and their facilities and everything just like a normal NCAA athlete would, except they're not NCAA athletes. They're basically just students with you know VIP access to athletics. Um, they have a coach there, Parker Spencer, that runs that that program. Um, and I, I believe he's still getting some help from Cliff English, who is the NCAA women's coach at Arizona state. 
Um, but he's kind of leading our, our development program on, on the coaching side and some, some of it on the, like the development and management side too. And so, um, basically this is, if, you know, if you're a high school male, a very, very, very high performing high school male, um, then you're probably going to be, you know, on their short list of athletes that maybe can, uh, get accepted into project podium. Um, if you kind of look at historical data from the last few years, they basically take like one or two guys a year. Um, it's not a huge, I think maybe the first year they got it four or five guys and then they just kind of added, you know, pretty carefully since then. Um, and then it seems like most of the athletes that as they graduate and age out of project podium, they're still training with Parker and staying in that area. And so it's, it's basically just a, a USA triathlon funded men's program to kind of counterbalance the fact that our best women get to go into NCAA. Um, and so um, I think from my perspective, I, whenever project podium was launched in 2018, their goal was to try to earn Olympic medals in 2028. And so they really have a, a long leash and a long, a long-term view of getting those athletes, you know, success, right? Cause I guess if you're taking guys that are 18 in 2018, then, you know, they're going to be kind of that prime triathlon age come the Olympics in 2028. And so, uh, the goal for project podium is to help develop those guys. Um, it might not be for everybody. Um, you know, over the summer last year, I got to go to Europe with our world championship team. Um, and that was really interesting because, uh, we had three junior guys and one of them has since then, um, committed to project podium. One of them decided not to go the project podium route, even though he was offered the opportunity to go. And so, um, I think you just have to weigh as an athlete, like if it fits your, your overall development plan. Um, but, I mean, it's a, it's a really good opportunity, but, um, some athletes that I've heard that have said no, have kind of felt like I'm already doing something that's working. So they didn't want to change it up. And then obviously on the flip side of that, like the amount of funding and support you're going to get from going to project podium is, is a big payoff too. So, um, that's, that's yeah, so basically like you you have to be dedicated to their systems, their coaching. Is that accurate? like you're buying into that. Right. So it would be just like committing to Alabama to play for Nick Saban, right. For football. It's the exact same thing. Yeah. You're, you're fully submersed in their, uh, um, into their program. But, um, okay. The, the other part of it that has kind of been confusing to some people that I've talked to and, and I don't know that I have an opinion either way is they kind of have a couple main guys in project podium and, they've added a couple athletes that maybe aren't necessarily top junior triathletes. Like they're very, very good junior triathletes, but they're not like the top two or three guys. Um, but they've added them because of their skill in a certain sport just to help their kind of like their primary two guys. So they've like added domestique type swim bike guys or something to help them to help workouts with the, uh, the primary guys. There's like the full focus ITU type racing, I assume. Yes, it's all it's all draft legal. Okay. So I think this how many might, people this, are part of it too? Like, is this a big team or is it like five? I think six they've people? got about eight or ten. Yeah. Across um, all four years. Right, um, and then they've got a few, a couple of like post grad pros that train with them. 
So it's hard to tell exactly. Okay. I haven't been able to find a real roster. I just kind of see their their pictures on social media and stuff. So I don't know who actually yeah, counts I mean, and who doesn't. <laughs> it'll be interesting to see like what happens with it. Um, there's no application process. Like you just have to be a good athlete. You have to get noticed. You have to get certainly maybe reach out if you're interested, but you have to get invited, right? Right. And that's also kind of interesting too, from like a, I doubt there's probably anyone here listening from outside the US, but how does this, like what are the rules associated with getting all that access to the athletic facilities, the scholarship, but not be an NCAA registered scholar? like scholarship athlete like that's unique too it is that's a little bit different um i mean the project is it is for americans so like i don't know from a funding perspective i assume that usat is putting the money toward americans i know there's uh, one canadian guy that's been training with them but i don't know that he's actually part of the program or not so um but I think this this probably ties into our last question is uh, what is the age to go pro and what exactly does that mean? So pretty much everybody that's in Project Podium, I think everybody should already be racing pro. Um, and so I think the premise of this question was uh, at our practice the other day, we were trying to figure out who we think the youngest pro is in the United States. Uh, we're pretty sure we know who it is, but um, I this I think the age of racing pro, this was kind of the reason that in the beginning of NCAA, I was slightly against it. Um, and I'm not, I'm not against it now. I'm still in favor of racing pro and especially the way that USA triathlon has kind of allowed it to happen. And the, there are kind of certain, not loopholes in NCAA rules, but there are, you can still race professionally in individual sports while you're an NCAA athlete, as long as you don't actually net money out of it. And so, um, the age to go pro in triathlon and my answer is as early as possible. So, um, that you can get the experience. Cause I just, I think if you're a really, really good junior and so like your top five are on the podium at all of the domestic races, then turning pro would let you get more experiences. Cause there's just not enough racing opportunities in the U S and I know that's something that USA triathlon is working really hard on. Um, but having the flexibility to go jump into some pro races too, that instantly doubles the amount of draft legal experience you can get in a year if you go to every single race. I mean, and that's really all, the NCAA piece is only a consideration on the women's side, right? It's not as much a care or concern if you're a, a man trying to go pro, you're not going to be competing at NCAA level unless you're like a cross country runner and somehow you're, you're also doing triathlon on the side. But I don't, I don't know of any of those. We, we have seen some like, cross-country runners come out of NCAA and immediately go pro in triathlon. Um, but yeah, I guess it makes sense. Yeah, as early as you can get some of that experience, as long as you understand the jump and the competitiveness of making that jump right away. I think right. that that's, there's a big, there's a gap. And like, I guess I'm not a pro, so I don't have like really any say in this, but like if you are coaching an athlete that's considering to take their pro card, like, do you want to just make sure they're ready for that first or is it just jump in no matter what? Um, I would lean towards jump in no matter what, but there are, you know, there has to be, I guess, a little bit of a limit. So depending on how you get your pro card, if you somehow um, qualify at, say you're just like 18 years old and you jump into 70.3 for fun and then you win or something like that, 
but your aspirations are in draft legal, but you can't swim, then maybe you, you know, you think about it. Oh, yeah. You know, but if you, um, if you actually get your pro card through a draft legal format, then I think you probably want to do it. Um, you know, unless it's one of those, there's very, it's very rare, but we've seen some of the, the, uh, the national triathlon development races is that's what they're called that where you can go get a pro card through a draft legal race. Um, and every once in a while there's a small field and then some guy just runs like 15 minutes flat and ends up winning, but he's a terrible swimmer. Um, and maybe that's the scenario where you try to swim a little bit more before you take a pro card. Um, but also just because you take one doesn't necessarily mean that you need to go do pro races right away. Cause you also, once you meet the criteria, you have 12 months to take it. Mm-hmm. So you also don't want to wait out of the window and then like not qualify again for a while. So I think if you, if you qualify, you might as well take it and, and figure out the best way to, to get to where you need to be. Okay. Or at least yeah. wait Good 11 advice. months and 29 days. Right. <laughs> <laughs> take it in the last available day. Um, yeah. Good stuff. I guess let's let's t- switch over to some news. We didn't get to all the questions. We'll save those. We may work those into future uh, podcast episodes. So so stay on the lookout for those if you submitted one. Uh, on the news side of things, the first item for us to kind of jump into really quickly is the PTO point system. Now I know it's been updated. I've seen the updated rankings. I haven't done like a deep dive analysis on them. Like oh, where do people shift and whatever like that? I know that there's there's been a lot of people that have done that, but first glance looking at them i think is the most important do they look right to you is or is there something that really sticks out as like wrong what's your feeling about that so i kind of like the new system um i think that it still is a little bit i don't want to say that it's confusing because it is much more straightforward but there is more math involved and so you know, I've listened to a couple of podcasts and people have talked about it. And Ruth Assel has been on a couple of podcasts because she was on their, their points committee. Um, and she was saying that, you know, now people can calculate it as it's coming. Um, but you almost can't because the, the way that they're doing this, just to kind of give a quick um, overview, is that they are breaking, first of all, all of the races, they have to be longer than an Olympic distance. Um, and then they're given a tier. And so their tiers are based on our diamond, platinum, gold, silver, and bronze. And so the, the tier is based on the amount of prize money, which is how Ironman used to do their tiers when they had a a points ranking. Um, so diamond is all the PTO events. It's Kona slash Nice and the Collins cup. Um, and they all have like a base point level. So there's more points for diamond, you know, significantly less points for a bronze level race, which would be like an entry level 70.3, um, small challenge races, things like that. So, um, after that, there's a point decrease. So like every place drops off somewhere between two and 11%. Um, and then each, each place gets that number of points. So your place score is 40% of your score. So that one's really easy from a math perspective because you can just say, hey, it's a diamond race. First gets 100, second gets 98, 96, 94. It's more or less two points until you get further down. All right, so now if you're not lost yet, the next thing is there's a strength of field score. 
And then they take the top five athletes with a PTO world ranking and average them together. So if you've got um, three athletes and then they're the highest one would be a hundred, like you get a hundred points for being like ranked number one in the world. And then it goes down. Um, and then they average that number out. And then that score counts for 30% of your score. Um, and then they also said in the event that there are less than five people, you're still dividing the total number by five. So like if there are four people in the race, then the fifth ranked athlete is zero. I, you're definitely, you're, you're losing me. All okay. Right. There's only I'm one more thing. Numbers. <laughs> so then the last <laughs> right, thing is they it. take the time and they average a certain number of athletes times. And then they take your time um, and then divide it by that time. And then that is the last 30%. So you can calculate it, but you wouldn't be calculating it until it's over. Okay. So we at home could calculate the score, but we would have to pull up the rankings. We would have to look at the results. We'd have to whip out a calculator and do all this math. Um, it's not as cut and dry as like world triathlon where we knew that if Alex Yee and Hayden Wild didn't sprint a little bit faster, that Leo Berger is going to be world champion. Right. Yeah. That's frustrating, but the PTO rankings are over the course of an entire year. So like I get like, right. they don't have to have it like, okay, Christian has to beat Gustav by a position here. No, right. he There's can not do a it by a position. He can do right. it by, he can do it by the amount of time he beats him. Like to me, that doesn't matter. Like I, I do look at the results, both men and women, and I feel like they're in a good spot. Like I don't feel like too much is out of place, but one thing that stuck out to me, at least like when I look at it and I haven't looked at the tier and I haven't looked at the details in, in the way you have, but it feels like to me that this system is not set up to really allow full distance triathletes to really capitalize the way that you go and do the some of the shorter uh, challenge or PTO type races and then 70.3 races. And I think you can end up with a better score. You can race more, you can have more opportunity. Whereas those full, like it just isn't, it's just isn't as capable. Now it's probably not possible to come up with a system that kind of balances all that out. When you have one race distance, that's probably like twice the distance of, of another. Um, so I'm okay with it. I'm okay with where it stands today. Like, like, do I still feel like Lionel and Sam should be five and six based off some of their performances? Like, well, I guess Lionel came in second at the world championships set on uh, the Ironman world championships a year ago. Um, but like, but like overall, no, I'm okay with Christian being ahead of Gustav, even though I think Gustav is, is a better athlete. And if he was present at the May St. George Ironman World Championships, he probably would have won or been competitive or had more points to be first overall. So, like, there's little things, but, like, the racing and the results that we saw make sense to me. Like, on the women's side, this is probably where, like, it stuck out to me most. Like, 70.3 athletes are really reaping the benefits or the shorter distance athletes. Like, Ashley Gentile, like, I think she is probably should be in the top three. I think it's debatable to just put her at number one. She had a hell of a year last year, uh, but it's all, it's all short course. She dominated though, every time she went out there. Um, but, but to me, that was a little bit of a surprise, I think. 
to, to have her at number one. Top three, yes. Um, you just don't see too many of the of the full distance women anywhere close to the top, though. And that, like to me, that was a little bit of a head scratcher. Right, and I, and they're still giving a bonus to your best full distance full distance score just to help that. But um, when the PTO events themselves are weighted more heavily, then it's going to to favor the, the yeah. people that are seventy point three specialists for sure. Yeah, like, yeah, two of Ashley's races are PTO events. Or actually, sorry, all three of her scoring races are PTO events. So smart, very smart racing. And she's obviously gifted and talented enough to perform well in all three of those events. Um, oh, and then the last piece here that always kind of grinds my gears, like overall, like I'm 90% with this system and it's better than the last one. But like the Collins Cup shouldn't be included. Like who cares? About no, the I don't like cup? that either. Like throw that out. That is crap because they're not on the same course. That they are on the same course, not at the same time. Their heats are set up where they're just competing against two other people. One, like it's three racers at a time, and then at the end of it, you give them a score based off like, oh, if everyone raced at the same time and they didn't, and the winds could have changed, tons of things could have changed, and that Collins Cup is drastically impacting the results. So yeah. I would love to see that thrown out. Yeah, and it's it it's almost like an exhibition anyway. <laughs> That's what I thought it I thought it was, and now but now like tons of the athletes are listed Collins Cup as like one of their key events. Uh, for Paula Finley, it's her highest scoring event. Daniela, it's her highest scoring event. Um, Taylor Nib wasn't there so she didn't get the opportunity to have that so she's fifth okay but taylor nib is maybe one of the should be in the top three um so yeah i just i just don't small things here but not not big issues um all right we're pushing up against time yeah well i think just a super fast note if you didn't uh if you didn't see the news that gwen jorgensen is back racing draft legal she raced over the weekend um, at a Continental Cup down in Taupo, and she got on the podium. She got third, so just something fun to to keep track of as we as she uh, progresses toward trying to get back to it to the Olympics again. Yeah, she got a new bike spe- a sponsor, Cannondale. So cool. She's on the brand new Lab Seventy One Super Six Evo that they just released. So that was that was cool. And then the Arena Games, Lionel Sanders competed more competitive than I thought he was going to be. So that was kind of surprising all right all right i think we're good we'll be back again in a couple weeks and we'll have um, a different format less questions we'll be going into talking about training for an ironman distance event so uh, make sure to follow along and catch that episode when it comes out thanks so much for listening everybody thanks everybody